restaurateurs and people in hospitality of being at the forefront of a lot of innovation. But because they have that authority, I think they should be using it more actively, more openly, more spontaneously, and with conviction, which they all do in the end, because everybody knows that if the ingredient is no good, there's no point putting it on a plate. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to one of Australia's best-loved food identities. But I don't know, there is so much about Stefano De Pieri that we could say I do not even know where to start. He is a councillor in local government. He is a lover of the arts. He is an advocate for regional Australia and Mildura and the, and the Murray-Darling in particular. And he has a new TV show coming up called Australia's Food Bowl which is premiering on SBS at the end of May. Stefano, welcome. <laughs> a pleasure. When you uh, did your first show, A Gondola on the Murray, and the book that, that preceded it, it was around the turn of the century, which makes us <laughs> all sound very old. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a bit of a revolution in, in the way that food was presented to the Australian public. There really hadn't been a show like that before. Um, and now, you know, you're back celebrating that region. But I guess... In the, in the interim, so much has changed in food culture, so much, so much has changed in our understanding of the environment and the way that our food systems interact with it. I mean, how are you feeling about, uh, how are you feeling about everything? Well, let me start from the beginning. Um, the gondola on the Mari was indeed uh, rough and ready. We did it with very little money on the ABC, but it did strike a chord because we were presenting um, regional Australia to essentially to a metropolitan audience and, and to also to other regional uh, audience. And and people saw the, the regions catapulted onto their screen and they said, well, there isn't, there isn't only Jamie Oliver or the two fat ladies or whatever at the time. We can, we have, we've got something to show as well. So, it was mostly based on, you know, if you like, a bit of entertainment, a bit of fun, um, and a bit of the Italian heritage. Uh, but now things have changed quite dramatically in the sense that all those families uh, have aged, they've gone. There's very little left of the traditional community structure of uh, of those days. Agriculture has become more production has become somewhat more professionalized and corporatized. And with that comes some great results and some great challenges too. And one of the main challenge, of course, is the use of water. So without hectoring people or being screaming from the megaphone, you know, uh, environmental politics, which is at the core of my belief system, but we, without being too strident, if you like, we just constantly refer to the importance of water and the importance of saving water and highlight um, how much is being produced with this water. Now, obviously, if you join your own dots, you will conclude that with climate change and uh, over-extraction of water, if we're going at this rate, we will compromise our food, the integrity of our food system. This is never quite, you know, fully spelled out because it's TV and whatnot, but it is, it is there. It's, it's the elephant in the room. 
I think you've always um, interwoven politics through everything that you've done. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see that you're continuing to use soft power in, in this way. Cause I think, you know, people are so much more, well, I feel like people in general are so much more aware of the way that water is used. Obviously climate change has become a huge part of everybody's thinking, hopefully, um, and when we when people talk about the Murray Darling Basin and and the 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 river systems, we do hear more about the commoditization of water. Which even to say that seems so ridiculous. That something that seems so inherently there for the community could be bought and sold like a commodity. And uh, we hear about you know foreign ownership of some water rights and issues associated with that. We hear about fish dying. We hear you know obviously the huge impact of, of cotton. Yeah, the choice of crops um, and and you know the impact of drought, which of course you know is amplified by um, yeah water being taken at various points along the way. So I mean. It's really, I haven't seen the show, but I, I'm going to be so interested to see how you create some, you know, cheery entertainment, but, you know, get us around the side with, um, with some, yeah, turn us into activists. Bear in mind, though, that, um, and I have to stress this, that we filmed during COVID, it was a, a battle uphill to, we were denied a lot of access to content, obviously, um, that could have made the show perhaps a bit more varied. Um, uh, uh, in the end, we selected to go with big chunks of things that are representative of some change or some innovation since the last, since my last TV, which was the gondola, like, for instance, the emergence of a huge olive oil industry, extra virgin olive oil industry, I must add. Um, 20 years ago, the it was just at the beginning, and and now it is, um, you know, you. I imagine you are you're a twenty year old. You go into a supermarket or some shop to buy your your groceries, and you pick up a bottle of Australian olive oil nonchalantly, without realizing that my generation had to go to the chemist to find olive oil. <laughs> Yes. Well, I thank God that has changed. But you're right. It's so easy to, to take these things for granted. And, and when people take them for granted, then they probably don't value them as much as would be would be helpful. Um, or, 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 for instance, um, we have a story which we focused on significantly on, on uh, the substitution of Chinese garlic in every Australian supermarket by... Nick Diamantopoulos, which is a story that you, Danny, could one day very well explore. It's just remarkable, remarkable. Well, tell us a little bit more about it. Well, as you know, Australian supermarkets uh, and other shops uh, have always imported Chinese garlic, always, since time immemorial, because it was readily available cheap, and to grow Australian garlic, garlic on a large scale is very, very, very difficult. Until this man began experimenting and trialling and, 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 and growing his stuff 20 years ago, and now has culminated in his capacity to provide fresh Australian garlic to almost every supermarket and every shop. It's an incredible achievement, and uh, he probably has you know, develop about 300 varieties 
but he only markets probably six or seven. And he's spreading garlic right around not only this region where the processing takes place and where all the, if you like, this is the administrative center of the project. Um, but he also grows down the Chuka Way, down Ballarat Way, now into South Australia to try to end, end soon up in Alice Spring. Um, with with the Aboriginal community because then he can bring garlic in much earlier in the season. So it's an extraordinary Australian achievement. And um, you'll, you'll see acres and acres and acres of the most stupendous garlic uh, developed by this quirky character who is just pure, pure fun, ingenuity and generosity. I'm so cheered up by that. And so this, 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 these changes are taking place as you have, you know, small growers doing persimmon or pomegranates or jujubes, you know. Um, so we're showing off a little bit of all of that and say, look, this is in your backyard. It's great. I can't wait to see that. And it's so, I mean, yeah, it's wonderful to have um, local garlic in more, more widely available and available throughout the year. It's fantastic. I know that you you talk about the Murray cod um, a lot. So can, can you tell us about what you, yeah, tell us what you discovered about Murray cod. When um, legislation prohibited the fishing, commercial fishing of cod, we were hoping that an industry would emerge, an aquaculture industry, and it has. And then again, you know, you wait with bated breath for the quality. Is it going to be muddy? Is it going to be tasty? And and I must say the result is very, very good, very encouraging. So we are now able to to um, to grow and and use this resource um, without having to yeah, without having to 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 fish uh, from the natural environment. Because uh, cod and perch and um, and catfish are very much under stress, as you can imagine, especially one of the things that probably will emerge from the show is when we go to the Darling River and explain that the Darling River, scientists have discovered, is the incubator of all fin fish, all native fish. It's the Darling from from Menindi to Mildura. And that's a fact that the authorities uh, have not wanted to highlight and it it was that that was the real tragedy when you saw the fish going belly up and dying because they were they are are you there yeah 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 they're the all those dead fish they're the mothers and father of 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 the fish that then with a flood with pulses of water then all these fish leagues are distributed right through the basin do you understand mm, yeah and because they got the technology now to have a look at the little bone inside the head of the fish. They can tell you how old it is and where it's been. They can tell you where the fish has been. So now we know, and, you know, this decision by the New South Wales authorities to shut the darling from Burke to to Mildura by um, 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 shutting down the Benindi Lake system uh, in order to keep water in the north for cotton is a disastrous thing. For it's one of the great scandals of Australian history. I just feel like so much of what's going on with our water is a great scandal. Do you, is, it, it, <laughs> it is. It is. And there lies the contradiction. Without it, we can't have the food. But, but 
the way it's over-extracted, for, especially for fibre, that that is silly. And uh, one of the other things is, you know, we cannot allow the continuing um, expansion of large investments like like um, almonds. We all love the almonds. I'm the first to love them. I dedicated a section to of the show to the almond, but uh, we we have to be aware that it's when you have one single almond, you are intaking four liters of water. Almonds just drive me a bit crazy because so many, so much, so many of them are now produced for almond milk. They take so much water to produce, and then they get mixed with water again to turn them into the milk. It's just so crazy. It, there is um, a bizarre kind of thing going on there, and um, uh, whilst the TV program sort of alludes to these things, it is important that us who operate in this environment are clear about the consequences of what's happening, and and we that we have to. I think that unfortunately, a lot of our colleagues and chefs and writers and so on have not linked sufficiently the future of food to the environmental issues. We always talk about the dish itself, the art, the flavor, the novelty, the fact that somebody has now invented something new or turned another culinary stone, discovering some other exotic ingredient or methodology, but we are failing to engage with consumers over this issue of water, climate change, and and environment in general, and loss of biodiversity. Yeah, I mean, look, every day it feels like there's another disaster, you know, that we're in the midst of, or another, I suppose, another expression of the same disaster. Um, I mean, it's really interesting, Stefano, because if we look back at the way that your food came to, you know, Australia's attention and the way that, you know, you cooked at your restaurant, Stefano's in Mildura in the Grand Hotel, which is just a real game changer for regional restaurants. In its, um, I mean, the the food, uh, you know, when I went there, the food was so beautiful, but there was also a real humility at the heart of it. And if I think about, you know, the Italian cooking that you that you showed us, it was really steeped in that um, those humble Italian traditions where there is that connection to seasons and the landscape, and there is this sense of of continuity, not this, um, as you say, this this um, you know high wire act of cuisine as performance, disconnected from context. Um, more about I don't know theatre and show, and that's fun, but you know what does it all what does it all mean, and and where are we where are we going with it? I mean. Ah, damn it. <laughs> oh, you're back? Hello? Oh, okay, sorry, I lost you for a minute. Um, so, yeah, we, we have this this sense of these two, I guess, strands of cuisine, this this humble strand and this, this uh, high-wire trapeze act strand. I mean, do you feel like it's about, um, is it like, is it a return? Is it the future? I mean, how do you think about that? Uh, look, I I I think that uh, the two strains are not mutually exclusive, because food represents traditions on the one hand and innovation on the other, and the two walk parallel lines. Otherwise, you you look at art. You know, you go from Raphael to to the Baroque, from the Baroque to Cubism, to the Abstract, to whatever. 
you know, it, it things never stay still. But it's nice to know that, on the other hand, you can always rely on the simplicity and reliability of certain cuisines, uh, which is steeped in time and practice and tradition. So, you know, you eat one one day and the other another day, or one generates comfort, the other generates a sense of wonderment uh, and immense possibilities, especially when it works, um, and human ingenuity, you know. So the two have to work hand in hand. And I suppose that being a cook and not a and not one of these mega creative chefs, I feel comfortable to be in my food bowl doing the doing the simple things that give pleasure every day and don't really need to bust the the wallet mm, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean w- yeah. what responsibility do you think chefs and restaurateurs have to communicate the interconnectedness of of you know what's on the menu with food systems. I mean, do you, do you think they have a responsibility at all, or do you think it's up to consumers to go to restaurants? No, no. I think we are all in it together, Danny. We're all in together, and um, and I think that uh, I think that the chefs and so on uh, have a huge role in front of our staff too. They have a huge role in being advocate for a for a for a better world. And they are advocate for a better world daily. What a better what a better way to live than to have a sense of mission when you get up in the morning and say not only I have to put some money in the till and make sure we employ people and pay them properly. We've seen some pretty unsavory things in the past, but now you know we can uh, we can draw the link between different things and uh, highlight the good and and criticize the bad and uh, i mean we've done a lot you know the whole organic thing has probably started in the kitchens it didn't start in woolworth then it goes to woolworth and calls but initially it comes from a few pioneers doesn't it um and so in many ways uh restaurateurs and people in hospitality have been at the forefront of a lot of innovation. But because they have that authority, I think they should be using it more actively, more openly, more spontaneously, and with conviction, which they all do in the end, because everybody knows that if the ingredient is no good, there's no point putting it on a plate. Yeah, and I think when you when you do get up in the morning with that sense of purpose, um you got to have to carry it through till you go back to bed in the in the evening, aren't you? Yes, but I tell you what, having a sense of purpose is, you know, is is very rewarding, and it would, does a great deal for at least for me, for my stability, for my mental health. Um, I always know that going to to a greater cause makes me feel better than you know than I start dwelling on my own. On my own inadequacy. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we think about, you know, traditions in Australia and things that we can do better, you, you, obviously we think of Indigenous Australians and, um, you know, foodways that have been destroyed and damaged or disrespected. Um, how do you engage with Indigenous Australia in, in this new show and, and uh, in the way that you work with food? A, a, a little bit. Um, there, uh, it was quite difficult to find the right fit because of the 
uh, COVID. And, you know, this uh, community is very exposed to, to in, you know, we had to be very, be, we had to be full of precautions. Um, sure. And so that's one, regretfully, one part that wasn't particularly um, well well dealt with, but uh, hopefully in the future. Um, I must say that here in this part of the world, there isn't yet a huge engagement with... Um, but I did have... I did put on a, a, um, two young um, uh, mothers who used to work for me. I'm very proud that I trained uh, Tamara and... Um, and the, the the two the two moms that will appear on the show, um, uh, that and and also Tamara's father appears and he talks about the cod and the history of the river. So we did we did do a little bit, but we didn't have a great deal of access. Mm, okay, yeah. um, Stefano, you were involved in politics before you were involved in food in a professional sense, and you're again, um, or you're on the council now. What are the, what are the issues that you're focusing on? Um, well, well, councils, you know, bread and butter, and and in in a lot of the bread and butter stuff, like rubbish collections and so on, they occupy and planning. Planning matters they, they occupied a great deal of time, but I suppose that beyond that we we have declared a climate emergency we are looking at gender equity and we're looking at uh redressing the cultural uh aspect a cultural aspect like Minutura hasn't had a history written since nineteen thirty eight so you know when there isn't a record a publicly available record of the evolution of this community. Um, since then, and even that which was produced in '38 was very partial. You know, it was a history of the colonization of Mildura, not a history of deep time to to the present. Um, so we we are um, you know little projects like that, and the development of our riverfront with more cultural assets there. So with my part is to promote the make visible the richness and the wealth of the Mildura history. We were, once upon a time, the sculpture capital of Australia. For 30 years, we dominated every expression of sculpture. This was a, an amazing workshop, far flung, in the middle of a small rural community. Anybody who was anybody came here to make sculpture. Did you know that? I had absolutely no idea about that. Is that just because one person set up some incredible studio and everyone had to go there? Or what, what was no, what because, happened? Because there was an extraordinary um, gallery. The, the, the history of art, the gallery itself was uh, established, deserves another chapter. But suffice to say that the, the one of the directors of the gallery said, great, we have a gallery with an immense collection left to us by a philanthropist, but what are we going to do now? I mean, that's static. That's museum-like. He wanted to do something that was more interactive, so he began inviting artists to come and use uh, the riverfront, paddocks, shops, abandoned shops, whatever. And there was a lot of ephemeral sculpture and solid um, lasting works from Inga King to many, many, many. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the yellow paddle in the city. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, the uh, the the prototype is called Beethoven. It's sitting now in front of the art center. It's a green sculpture, a set of intersecting planes that looks non, you know, non-discreet. But if you look carefully, it was very innovative at the time. And then um, Robertson Swan went on and made the the yellow peril that made the Herald run a a, a, a fierce campaign against it for for months on end. Uh, engaging with new varieties in in 30 years. But hardly anyone knows that. No. Well, yeah. I certainly didn't know that. And But I do remember the Yellow Peril. I, I think I was a kid. I can't remember how old. But, um, yeah, there was this bright yellow sculpture. That is still oh. there next to Acker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know I can go and see it next to Acker now, but it was in the city square, which now is a building site for the Metro Tunnel. But it was um, <laughs> I was just thinking back on it. It's so funny to think about how up in arms people were about, you know, this offensive series of planes. I suppose, you know, we had a similar response to Federation Square, um, which, you know, now is part of the fabric of, of the city. Um, we always react like children, you know. We say, nye, 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 nye. it's just so um, silly the way we react to, to, but I suppose that's part of the evolution. Yeah, I don't know where we're going with that word, but, yeah, what, I don't know where we're evolving. Last week they sold at auction uh, the drawings for the Yellow Peril and they thought they were going to get $15,000. It got to fifty grand. Just for the drawings of of that particular, um, yeah. So things move in mysterious ways. They they certainly do. Um, so I'd love to learn. I mean, you mentioned that COVID really affected the filming of um, Australia's Food Bowl, but was it? Um, I mean. Here from my perspective in Melbourne, I remember seeing Mildura on the news and, you know, just uh, people thinking it was a little bit ridiculous that you were um, subject to some of the same restrictions as we were in the city at times. So, yeah, tell me tell me about what it was like through 2020 for Mildura. Well, first of all, we didn't have a single case, but we, of course, had um, applied to us all the restrictions that were common in Melbourne. In fact, at some stage we sort of complained to the Premier quite bitterly and said, look, you have to keep your wall around the city, but let us move freely because there is nothing wrong here. Uh, but with that said, you know, who knew? We were expecting the worst. Uh, a hospital here was prepared for uh, for um, an avalanche of cases. In, in, in reality, nothing went wrong, but... You know, I had a crew from Sydney and just for them just to simply find the opportune time to cross the border was a difficulty. I bet yeah. it was. Then, yeah. 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 So we had to get permits and then sometimes it would be unexpectedly shut again and they couldn't come. So it was, you know, it was, it took a year rather than six months and um, it was very expensive. It was uh, because when you, can't work in a linear fashion, you know. You, it's like reinventing the wheel every time, and uh, um, so it was. A, it, and we wanted to tell the story, for instance, of our tomatoes, in um, uh, how the water that comes out of tomato can be purified and bottled. Um, uh, it was a quirky little story. We couldn't do that. We couldn't do a lot of the stuff that still happens in in the Italian families. Um, 
which would have had a little touch of the old gondola, not a lot, but again, we missed out on all of that. Mm. We missed out a little bit on more human contact. Sometimes you see me talking to someone and I am at the mandatory 1.5 metres away. You know? <laughs> okay, right. So. Hey, how are you going? You're waving <laughs> to somebody who's just, you know, over there. You say, why is he over there? That's we're gonna yeah I guess there's gonna be a lot of things that we look back on and they'll be dated with that distance yeah indeed um what's it been like there since everything reopened and people from the cities and other states were allowed to travel to Mildura extraordinary it's extraordinary and we we have people that normally go to other parts of the world even you know people with uh, the ability to spend and um uh, we can't find staff. So if anyone's listening, we can't find staff, particularly in wine. And, you know, uh, we need more people out here to know how to sell a bottle of wine and tell a story. Uh, um, and especially I, here in this region, and you probably know that uh, since the Chalmers established the nursery, everyone has been buying new varieties. And they've entered every restaurant and wine bars of Australia has had the experience of, you know, uh, engaging with new varieties. And and now we're even producing stuff of huge quality here because the new varieties and different ways of handling it is actually lifting this region out of that bad name that we've always had for being, you know, big commercial things. But we need mm. people to come and help us. Well, you know what, Stefano, one of the big, I mean, I've everybody in the city, I mean, everyone in the regions, everybody is talking about staff. One thing that I've heard in the regions is that you can you looking for the staff is the first problem, but finding housing for them is it's is true. the next. It's I mean, true. have you got rooms for these people that you want I to come up come and sell wine? I'll make my house available. I'll do anything. I'll find them the accommodation, but uh, because we just need. I mean, if I had if I had two people on the floor, um, I could. Um, increase my business by 10 or 15%. But not only that, I can give a better service than than I can at the moment. You know, at the moment, I have to limit my bookings. I say I either do a, a shit job or I limit the bookings. I mean... And I choose the second. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to look, you've got to preserve your reputation, but it's so frustrating that people are not able to regain lost ground and, and forge on with their businesses because there aren't the staff. Mm-hmm. I mean, were there, a, were you relying a lot on travelers, backpackers? Of course, of course. They always had a set, a small amount of backpackers who took us over the line. It's so frustrating because exactly a year ago, you know, we were all looking at, you know, the way JobKeeper was implemented, the way that we, the messaging that we were getting from the federal government about, what, you know, what if you if you couldn't look after yourself, go home. It was so foreseeable that we would be in this situation. And now here we are. You can't rebuild your business. Mm. Well, the business, the, the business, the opportunity is there. Um, it's to avail yourself and to actually uh, deliver, you know, you get people who come in and say, what Barolo have you got? <laughs> that never happened before, um, although I've always had a very good list. And, and you know, so you have um, 
my member of staff scrambling up to me and say, the customer was Barolo, go and, go and help them, you know, mm. I can help. But, you know, if I'm not there one night, I feel yeah. like, shit, uh, what's going to happen? Um, I mean, I do have another person there who is very qualified, but we could do with more. But not just me, it's across the board. It's Absolutely. Re- yeah, it's industry-wide. I mean, I think it, because, of course, it's that it's getting that sale and looking after that customer, but it's Barolo. You know, you want to honour the wine as well and, and, and you know, the grand stories behind that. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, of course. And there are many different Barolos, as you know. You know, and, and age is a factor, so you have to talk about it. But also this revolution now that is happening here with the new varieties, you do know that I... One of my proudest moments, perhaps, is, you know, not gondola that said to people, well, regions have a function, please recognize them. And the second thing was new varieties have a role in the Australian uh, drinking firmament because you can't just drink Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and, and bloody Shiraz the whole time. And so now we've got this huge variety that intersects with skin contact, with all that sort of stuff. And it's just magnificent what we've done. We did it from here with the help of Max, Tim White, Max, uh, the whole lot of you, and all these hundreds of songs that have come through the last 21 years of the Alternative Varieties Wine Show. Mm. It's amazing what we've done collectively, collectively. So yeah, just to just to expand on that a little bit more. So you started the alternative varieties wine show. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Well, we we when the Chalmers family decided to embark on the importation of Italian and varieties, they needed a, an instrument to um, to 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 demonstrate the validity of this exercise. And so we began for the first two years. We just did a an arbitrary dinner based on Sangiovese because people didn't know what Sangiovese was. They thought of Chianti but they didn't know what was behind it. And so we began a conversation through the Sangiovese challenge and then slowly but surely uh, a lot of stuff started to be produced and by the fourth or fifth year we were up to 50, 60 entries of locally grown and locally made new varieties. And now we have graduated Pinot Grigio out. The next will be Prosecco to go out and maybe something else because we are we're getting <clears throat> hundreds upon hundreds of entries that we can't handle anymore. Wow. So, <laughs> what, a, yeah, what a transformation. Well, but, but you think about it. When, the, when was the first Pinot Grigio produced? It was Tigaland on a small scale. And then it just became... Um, a supermarket line. Yeah, that's so interesting how things change. So rapidly, so rapidly. And now people talk to me, they come in, an ordinary panther said, oh, have you got any Nero Diavola? <laughs> Love uh, it. They say Nero Diavola. I say it's not the devil, it's <laughs> Diavola, the city ins. Um, but never mind. Uh, yes, I do have it. <laughs> Which version yeah. would you like? And and so on. And people now are curious Uh they're curious. They allow themselves, and the younger generation, especially, they're not they're not stuck like um, baby boomers on Shiraz and Chardonnay. It's all um, horizontal for them. It could be this, mm. could be that, could be something. It's not you know. There's not a vertical a hierarchy of stuff 
but also on top and everything else. Can't it's, yeah. It's, it's across the board. Young people now have an open mind. Well, you know, it's like it makes me think of, you know, Spotify and the way that people can listen to music where it's just like from song to song, it's all, it's all, it's all on the same plane. It's not mm, that, mm, yeah, mm. it's not that um, there's less context perhaps, but there's more open-mindedness and you can and just then, be thrown into any new experience. And then that creates the context mm. in time. It creates context. And it, yes. cre- it has created, I think, an association of food and wine that's much more sophisticated than it used to be. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to need to ponder that one, Stefano. But I, yeah, um, have you ever thought of going into federal politics and just sorting a few things out? No, but I may consider going into state politics. Yeah, I may. I may because again, for um, you know, I'm 66, and if I don't do it soon, I'd never do it again. I may have a go, but it's mostly to talk about the regions. You know, I I've got got this bugbear that um, that as soon as COVID is resolved, which will ever will be resolved, um, the metropolis will will abandon us again, and yet we are the one who provides you with the snow, with the water for skiing, with the food and the wine. And we want a better engagement with, with the city and with the, with the polity than, than we have had so far. We've always had to scream to get something done, particularly on the environment. And now it's time to join the city and the country. I, I am working with – I wanted to invite you over. I always think of you, I must say. I'm now the patron of the Postcolonial Institute in Institute of Studies in North Melbourne, but we've embarked on a project called the Future of Food. We want to understand where this is going and and the implication of city and country, uh, not just as a matter it's it's a very important economic and cultural thing. It's a defining issue of our times. Where are you going to get the food from? And how are you going to protect those sources of food? And do you really want to export all the food that we export? What for? Mm. Are we sacrificing our resources in order to feed, what, a few Chinese middle-class people? You know, there's some really serious, serious, serious issues there. Well, we're growing it with water that they own, so, you know. (laughs) Uh, well, it's not that bad yet, but it's certainly we are exporting water all the time. Mm. And, yeah. yeah. Is there an ephemeral gain? Yeah, well, they're such big questions, and, I mean, they're the questions that we need to be asking. And it is, it's ridiculous to think that there is a city-country divide because, of, as you say, you know, the resources of the country are what keep the city going. Unfortunately, it seems as our cities keep expanding, we also, you know, plonk houses onto arable land. Arable and land. That doesn't... Up. Yeah, that yeah. seems like a pretty bad idea. So, I mean, it's, yeah, as you say, we are all in it together. And if COVID taught us anything, surely it's that. So, um, yeah, well, I'd love to be part of it, any of those conversations. So, yeah, let's keep, let's, let's keep chatting. Yeah. Um, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast today, Stefano. Um, I love the breadth of um, your thinking and all the many strands that you draw together in all the different things that you do. Uh, I look forward to watching Australia's Food Bowl coming up on SBS, but um, thank you so much for um, taking the time to have a chat today. A pleasure, Danny.
anytime. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.